Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest industrial relations thinking. My name's Rowan Doyle and I'm a partner in the industrial relations practice at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I've got the very special privilege today of being joined by possibly one of the greatest IR practitioners of our time, Russell Allen. Great to have you on board, Russ. Well, thank you. They are very nice words, Rowan. I don't know whether the greatest, but um, but I've had a bit of prominence in my time. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> and, a, look, and look, it's lovely to be invited to be at this podcast. Uh, the feedback I get from clients is that this is a lot of help to them in understanding what is now becoming a, a far more difficult uh, journey on industrial relations in Australia. Thanks very much, Russ. You're, you're a modest man and you need no introduction really, but I, I will give one for our listeners. Your key specialty is workplace strategy in the energy and resources sector and particularly with a focus in oil and gas, uh, in banking and financial services and also ports and maritime. Now that's what our website would say about you, Russ, but we of course know that, uh, and our listeners should know, that you started with Herbert Smith Freehill's legacy firm, Moore, Hamilton and Derham in 1973. And in fact, uh, did so with uh, two of our partners at that time, Stephen Alley and Colin Pilates. And we know, of course, that Justice Alley, as he then became, uh, around about three years after you commenced practice, then uh, went and, and sat as a judge on the Australian Conciliation and Arbitration Commission. And Colin Polites also, um, we all know, was at HSF legacy firms for about 17 years before becoming a senior deputy president of the Industrial Relations Commission, Australian Industrial Relations Commission as it was then known, where I think he served for 17 years. So uh, very impressive history there, Russ, and, and some great colleagues for you to start your career with Certainly back in was. 1973. Yeah. I think you might have been on the, the weighty wage of about $21.50 a week as an article clerk at that point, Russ. Well, that's all they paid article clerks. So we got roughly about a third of what the junior secretaries got. But that was a sign of the times. You know, mind you, it didn't, didn't last long. The, once um, Steve and Colin threw me, in, threw me in at the deep end with uh, appearance work very early in my career, uh, uh, they certainly realised that they need to change it and they doubled it a couple of times that year. Well, you've certainly negotiated some wage increases since that time, <laughs> Russ, but um, since then you've of course held some really important roles with the firm, uh, including setting up our national practice many years ago and, and ultimately leading our industrial relations practice for, for many years. And uh, pleased to say that you're still a very valuable and active member of our team. You've been helping clients uh, adjusting to this new world of industrial relations, which we'll touch on today. And you've been a great mentor and support to a great many mm. of practitioners from our, uh, from our firm over the years, and, and many of which owe a great deal of thanks to you, Russ, for where they are at in their careers now, thanks to, to your support. So a big thank you from me on that, Russ. Thanks, Ron. Um, and you've also been involved in some of the many significant industrial relations disputes over the years, and probably too many to mention on this episode. But one of the big reasons we're having you on the episode today, Russ, is that you have very recently celebrated your 50th year yep. with the firm, which really reflecting on that is, is such a huge achievement and one that I imagine is going to be quite difficult for, um, for others, of certainly of my ilk and into the future, to repeat. It's, it's a really impressive uh, loyalty that you've shown to the firm and a really impressive career. But what it did do is cause me to reflect on your 50, 50 years, Russ, and on the change that we've seen in industrial relations over that time. It really is uh, quite a significant amount of change. And particularly in the context of the new reforms that are in the process of being implemented, which in some respects are taking us back to the past uh, and back to some of the um, tools and experiences that perhaps um, we were more familiar with back in maybe even the 70s and, and 80s. And so I thought, what better way to spend, it's our 10th episode of Inside IR, Russ, and your 50th year of practice with the firm. So I thought we'd have a special episode dedicated to exploring the changes that we've seen in industrial relations over those five decades. Um, what, uh, and what are the differences that we have in industrial relations now? What's gotten better? What's perhaps gotten worse? What are some lessons that we can take from the past and take with us 
into what is a fairly uncertain future in navigating the latest industrial relations reforms. So on today's episode of Inside R, we're going to first start by looking back and we'll draw on you, Russ, to hear about the three key phases of industrial relations over the last five decades. And we'll talk about some important issues, including what tools were available for employers to resolve industrial disputes and settle on terms and conditions of employment. How was industrial action managed? How, uh, what degree of power did the union movement have and how were they exercising it? And what did employers do in relation to employee engagement? And then we'll move to the second half of the session, Russ, where we'll focus a bit more on the future. What lessons can we take from the experiences of the past and how do we apply them in the context of the industrial relations reforms that were in the process of being implemented now? So with that introduction, Russ, we might perhaps start by throwing to you to give us a bit of a brief outline of the three key phases of industrial relations for reform over the past 50 years. Yeah, look, I think probably some practitioners will wonder, how do we manage to get only three phases? Well, we're trying to avoid giving people a history lesson in this, in this session. But I think the first phase really is, well, at the time I started in industrial relations, although it was probably before I started with my firm because my, my father was Shell's IR manager at the time. Um, I started learning about what industrial relations was about when I was about 14 or 15. So we've possibly got six decades. Anyway, um, but let's just stick to that. But it's really the period, the first period really is from time I started roughly the 70s going through to I think the, the biggest change was then uh, the wreath legislation, in other words, the Workplace Relations Act in 1996. Mm. So the first stage, um, one of the things that was important about uh, about the legislative underpinning of industrial relations is that it was basically bipartisan. In other words, um, both sides of politics agreed to the legislation. It normally got passed unanimously through Parliament. Um, one of the changes during that period was certainly the change from the focus on industry to enterprise, um, but that was that didn't really change much of the of the of the architecture of the system. But that was really the first phase. Now, what some of the things, and we'll deal with this a bit later. What did that involve? Well, focus on industry, and then changing a bit to to enterprise. Um, the, the 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 toolbox, in other words, the things you could use to change, was quite limited. Uh, but the important, the important feature was, well, there was a lot of industrial disputes. Mm. A lot of, you know, all the, uh, the trams would go on strike. Same with Melbourne, I was talking about trams. And, <laughs> and, and you know, the, uh, the airline refuelers would go out, so I wouldn't be able to get a plane home to Perth. And, um, the, you know, all of, all of these things really, it was a significant amount of industrial action. Um, we also faced a situation where um, employers were going to need to try to make more changes and they were really in a system which didn't give them the tools they needed to do it. So that's the first phase. Being the 70s until around about 96. Yeah, around 96, a little bit earlier mm. in some of the states like the West where we, got, where we, we moved a little bit earlier to, to change. But the second stage really was Workplace Relations Act through... Uh, and that was a major shift. The big, the big change there was the, 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 the pendulum of the industrial relations was moved very quickly to the right. It really, it, it started by introducing laws that introduced, um, reduced the role of unions uh, in agreement making. So you had, you, you had in, in, employee collective agreements as well as union collective agreements. Uh, the important and more controversial one, the introduction of Australian workplace agreements, in other words, statutory contracts, uh, which meant that you weren't then in the award system at all, uh, uh, plus reduction in the, in the role of the Commission in terms of arbitration. Uh, those changed things a lot, and, and that led to a period of time um, which completely changed the monopoly powers that the union had over industrial relations. Now that then got developed into um, to work choices, um, which we did not draft. 
despite what is said by some of the commentaries that I've seen recently. Um, but that legislation took it even further to the left yeah. and ultimately led to uh, one of the factors that led to the downfall of the, of, of the, the coalition. And then we, we moved to what became the third phase, which was, uh, okay, the election of the Rudd-Gillard governments um, and, that, and, and the introduction of the, the Fair Work Act. And the Fair Work Act really was um, a renamed work, you know, uh, Workplace Relations Act in many respects, mm. but, but taking out things like AWAs, making it more, more difficult uh, for the employers to, uh, to um, make agreements uh, with, with small groups of people and, and, and a, a number of things like that, and starting to give back more powers to the Commission. And that third phase, we're still in now. Now we're in the, 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 the second or second and ongoing phase of it with the recent legislation. Uh, and clearly the Albanese government is, is set to um, continue that reform, which, is, um, which the, 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 the issue is, is this going to be back to where it was back in the 70s? Are they going to go that far? You know, the introduction of multi-employer mm. uh, uh, agreements is is really uh, going back to those sort of times when uh, you looked at industry agreements. In those days, those industry agreements were in the nature of um, consent awards and so forth, but but they certainly led to a very different complexion of industrial relations. Yeah, and that's right. And we're really keen to explore how you think the multi-enterprise bargaining environment will work in, in light yep. of experiences from the past. But before we get to that, Russ, I think just to recap, so we're talking today about three key phases of industrial relations. The first being 70s until around about 96, the mid-90s. Yep. The second being the mid-90s until 2009, being the introduction of the Fair Work Act. And then the post-Fair Work Act phase. And I think um, the in, in coming months and years, I think we'll, we'll start to learn that we're probably in a completely fresh phase starting from now. But I think that'll, that'll be a topic for another time. But I think it would be good to start, Russ, with the, the first phase. I mean, you've mentioned the tools that are available to employers in arriving at terms and conditions of employment resolving disputes. What tools were available over that period, the period of the 70s until the mid-90s, and how are employers using them? Well, well the answer is there were very limited tools, mm. but, what you, but you could still work it through. Um, the period of time we're facing, you know, one thing you, uh, uh, you can't ignore is the fact that, you know, there was enormous changes in technology at that time. Uh, and, and individual companies were dealing with it in their own way. It wasn't like a whole industry were doing it, although in some cases, the industries were doing it. You know, for example, you had situ what, what was happening? Um, newspapers, okay, they were changing from um, manually making printing blocks each day, you know, with a whole range of different skills in that industry to, to doing it digitally. Um, that's a huge change in the whole process the work, the training of employees. Banks, okay, cash society was being changed starting first by credit cards. That's mm -hmm. when credit cards started coming in, changed the nature of, of work significantly. Um, ATMs changed the role of bank officials. So that's in that industry. In other industries, in manufacturing, mining, a whole range of different areas, um, the change from analog to digital uh, process instrumentation, um, which was a major change. So it was taking the whole, um, changing the skills that employees had to have, um, changing the nature of the work they did. And of course that process wasn't just in those sort of industries, in, in the building industry. Um, one of the big changes, one of the big disputes we had here in Victoria was the introduction of scissor lifts don't know whether, was that before your time? Yes. It is. Okay, <laughs> well, well scissor, scissor lifts were, um, meant that the sort of uh, lifts you had on building sites, these major construction down here, they, they, they were always, uh, always had a, um, the, 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 there was always in, uh, uh, 
more employees involved in those, those sorts of systems. Then all of a sudden came scissor lifts, which meant that one man operation, um, the BLF of course wanted two, uh, the, uh, it meant that you didn't have to have so much expensive scaffolding done anymore, so less work for the riggers and scaffolders. Mm. So there was changes across all sorts of industries. And you know the, the, the tools that were available just weren't keeping, tra uh, keeping up with the, the, the needs of employers. So you could, you could. I think you mentioned Russ in, in when we've debated this in the past. The consent award-based system had its purpose, and 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 it worked in part where there were industry-level changes that needed to be implemented. But I think the point that you made previously is that a lot of these, um, let's call it technological change or process-related change, a lot of those changes affected employers in various different yep. ways, which I think meant that. I mean, the industry the consent award process at an industry level just wasn't fit for purpose. Well, it was too slow. Right? And, yeah. and of course, a lot of these changes, you know, one company wants to get ahead of the next. They don't want to have to go and deal in an industry context mm. with making these changes. They want to do it quickly because, you know, quite frankly, um, an industry process is always going to be much slower than what an individual company wants. So, yes, you did have processes which enabled you to get uh, consent enterprise awards, or um, they called the memorandums of agreements under the legislation, but they were in effect what you know, certified agreements with, but one distinct difference: um, the, the the role of the commission was that it could arbitrate; it, it had full rights to arbitrate at those times. Secondly, um, in deciding whether to certify an agreement or make a consent award. Uh, it had to take into account the public interest. Well, that was, well, whatever someone one day thinks is the public interest. Very different views about, uh, it came out from the Commission about what that was. But it meant that, for example, a major aluminium company in the West decided to introduce a 36-hour week for whatever reasons, but it fitted in with, with, with the other changes they were making. Mm. Well... That was in a consent agreement, which was then refused by the commission. Right. So you know, and um, yet, um, one of its competitors in uh, a new company that just introduced the thirty-six hour week as the start of its operation, somehow that was in the public interest. Mm. I mean, it was a bit hard to work out those rules, but there was certain that was certainly a break, but it was certainly very slow, and it meant that to escape that, um, companies really needed to, well, they needed to, they needed better tools. But, but I think one of the important things was you could still work through things. So some of the things we worked through and, you know, we workshopped this stuff with our clients. There was still, you know, uh, still a, an approach you used. Getting rid of demarcations was important. You know, that was, that was just, that was just a break. You know, the very fact that, um, you, uh, that demarcation meant that uh, you could have you could have a, a, a maintenance tradesman changing a piece of equipment, uh, and and then but that maintenance tradesman wasn't then allowed to go and test that equipment, mm. um, and so you then have to bring in an operator. That was the sort of demarcation between sort of the metal workers uh, area and the the operators. Uh, in many industries covered by the AWU. A lot of inbuilt inefficiency in that. Inbuilt inefficiency. Mm. Um, and so that was just slowing things down. Mm. Uh, you, you had, you had a, a change to the, just the nature of work itself. A lot of industries were finding that um, three eight-hour shifts were not the best way to run their business. And, they were, and, and employees didn't like them. They didn't like going from you know, day to afternoon to night shift, they, they much preferred longer periods of shifts. So the introduction of 12-hour of shifts became important. Well, initially the unions opposed those, uh, but the workers loved them. They, they preferred to work less days than 12-hour shifts. So those changes were, were important changes that needed to occur. Um, in, you know, in, again in the West, um, introduction of fly in, fly out. 
Um, so two on, one off, two on, two off, shifts, whatever they might be. Um, initially, the unions objected to those, but the employers liked them. So a lot of the changes actually employees wanted, but unions who were representing them were actually taking a very different view to this. So there was a need to try to to make to, to quicken the process to get more tools. Yeah. And 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 the and the what was then happening uh, as we as we get into the 90s was the need for companies to um, to move quickly, to be more nimble, to be able to do things themselves, to and to then have tools to introduce that, and that that, that was the mantra that the employer organisations were talking to, and the, the large employers were talking to the coalition about what they needed, um, uh, as it looked as though there was there's more prospect of the coalition coming back into power. So before we move to that next phase, Russ, I mean, it sounds like you had a, a pretty tense environment where you've got some difficult changes that are being implemented, removal yeah. of demarcation, uh, you've got changes to rostering arrangements to make them more efficient, yeah. technological change. I mean, these are all difficult issues. And you've made the point that it was just too slow. The system didn't really facilitate um, enterprise level changes of, of that nature. But Reflecting on the tools that were available at the time, I mean, what did success look like for an employer? For employers that were able to drive through those changes and, and do it well, how did they do it? And what skills did an industrial relations practitioner of that time need to have? Well, one of the skills was to be a good mate of the unions. Mm. You know, and, and the, you know, the, you've, you've all heard the, impression, the, the expression, the, the IR club. Well, it was it was well and truly in existence in those de- times. The the employers were uh, 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 the relationship between the industrial um, relations managers and officers of the the companies and the unions um, was the key factor. Um, the and look, you had the most unusual environment where um, if there was a problem. Uh, in a business now, you're talking about an age where union membership was significantly high. Mm. You know, very significantly high. A lot of co- lot of companies um, agreed to pay union dues for the for their employees. Whether whether the employees wanted to be union members was not a point. Uh, became very contentious later, of course, with freedom mm. of association laws. But but you had a very a very strong union involvement. You had uh, shop stewards who were given plenty of time off to do union business while so they were employed by the company and they got time off to do union business um, and they did that with the with with the industrial relations people mm. you you didn't have the same role for hr hr was looking after payroll recruitment and those sorts of uh, sorts of issues you didn't have payroll looking at what we term now is the engagement that a company and its and its managers have with with its workforce. And why was that, Russ? Well, because because the the changes in the system were driven by the relationship between the between IR and the union. And, and the communication flow from employers to its employees. I mean, how did well, that used to work through the shop stewards? Mm. So so uh, a shop steward, if there was a if there was a problem at the workplace. Uh, you wouldn't rather than talking to the employees themselves, the companies talked to uh, to the shop stewards. Um, got got in the West, it was you had people. These shop stewards were called conveners, and they were they virtually did no work. They just they just um, they were just they just went around making life difficult for the companies. Quite frankly. At, at their at their paid expense. And but, you've, I mean, you've mentioned Russ during that period. There was a lot of industrial action. Yep. Was it unlawful at that point? Well, well, it it it, it was, but it, but that was that it, it wasn't seen to be. Strikes appeared to be um, just part of life, mm. and they had been for years and years. It was only um, during that, uh, you know, the during the eighties that you had tests of the legality of of that industrial action. You know, the the dollar sweets. Uh, uh, Case the, uh, the 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 
you know, there were those sorts of cases. You know, the airline pilot, the pilot's dispute, um, which led to civil action being taken for inducing breach of contract um, in, the, in the Supreme Court. They, they, there were then tests of the legality of industrial action. And, and ultimately, um, the, the, the courts determined that that sort of, that that industrial action was unlawful. Mm. Um, it breached the industrial torts. Um, and uh, unions were liable for damages for, for inducing breach of those contracts. So it, 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 the, the, the understanding that um, you, could, you could take industrial action with impunity was changing. Yeah. And that ultimately led to um, changes in legislation in years, in the following eras, the following phases, where they introduced the concept of protected industrial action rather than industrial action. And if, if, if action is unprotected, it's still subject to all the industrial torts and all that other stuff. If it's now protected under law, it means that uh, that there's now immunity from from that. Yeah, and it made the enforcement of unprotected industrial action a bit a bit easier because, to your point, Absolutely. despite it being unlawful anyway, it happened, and it happened a lot. We'll, we'll come back to the statistics on and, that. And, and, and quite frankly, uh, it was a, a lot of that that change in mindset about well, uh, you know, strike action can be illegal in mm. certain circumstances, and tickets can be illegal. That. Um, Employers then used uh, as as part of the toolkit to mm. as a means of of, of 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 getting change that they need, and that was you know um, very significant. One of the reasons why I ended up in the West probably was because it was some of the biggest uh, cases there. The the Hammersley case in 1992 was probably the the most important one of all, and that mm. that involved a situation where one employee. Um, in Hammersley's operation, wasn't a member of the union, and uh, the union basis, the union found out about that, and they said to Hammersley, "Well, you either sack him, um, or we all go on strike." Mm. Hammersley um, uh, uh, had taken advice from us, and we'd told them that um, because of freedom of association laws in Western Australia, that was not an option. That would be that would be a breach of those laws, and the union said, "Well, we don't." When they were told that, they said, "Well, we don't care." They used different words actually, um, and and they all went out on strike. Mm. Ultimately, the commission couldn't solve the problem. Um, Hammersley threatened them with legal action based on their inducing breach of contract, you know, because it had stopped their whole operation, yeah. cost them, you know. 30, but they, their losses were 30 or 40 billion US in those days, mm. which was a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. And so, so Hammersley threatened to take that common law action. Um, the unions um, wisely decided to go back to work uh, or to make sure their employee, all their members went back to work. But they then put a caveat on it. They said, if that employee comes back, uh, to work, then we'll all go out and strike. And that was enough for us then to go to the Supreme Court of Western Australia and get an injunction, um, which meant that, that effectively the, that injunction meant that you couldn't discriminate against anyone because they were a member or weren't a member of a union. Mm. And that basically meant that employees in Western Australia realised that compulsory unionism was not necessary. They didn't have to be a member of the union. Yeah. That was one of the biggest changes that occurred in Western Australia. Yeah. So it gives you an example of how those courts can be used to do that. That's right. Yeah. And look, you've, you've summed it up well before in our previous discussions where, where you've described it as a period where there were rules, but there were no rules. That's right. And uh, in a That's sense that, you know, the practice perhaps differed a little bit as to what was strictly in the well, legislation. Well, it, it, we'll put it this way. There were unwritten rules probably, mm. um, which namely was that, well, uh, industrial action could be taken, but it was a myth that it wasn't then. Uh, it was, that it was that it was lawful. Yes. Yeah. It was that type of situation. Which which brings us. I mean, we, we've we've spoken a little bit 
You've made the point, Russ, that um, engagement was really non-existent with That's employees right. at that point because the relationship was tightly held between IR manager and union. That's how deals were done and any communication with the workforce went via the shop steward. Yeah. Now, that of course changed over time. Yeah. Um, and we've spoken a little bit about the impact of industrial action, the disputes that occurred over that period. Now, I'm interested in industrial action over that period, Russ, because when you look at the data of working days lost and how that compares with the three separate periods of industrial relations that you're talking to today, there is quite a correlation. Now, if we start with that first period, Russ, the 70s to the, to the mid-90s, you look at the data from the June quarter of 1988, there's almost 626,000 days lost to industrial action, which is a huge number particularly when you compare that with the fair work era, you have a look at the data there, September quarter of 2012, we had a peak of 110,000 working days lost. Now, it's, that pales into insignificance when you're looking at uh, the, the June quarter of 1988. And following that period of 2012, we then had what's you know, quite a flat period of working days lost to industrial action. Really nothing much to speak of. The only change to that has been perhaps a more recent uptick and it'll, time will tell to see whether that is reflective of a new, new trend. But I think if you look at that strike data by reference to your three periods, Russ, you can see that it was heavy disputation back in the 80s and 90s and it resolved quite quickly upon the implementation of the reforms that you've been talking about in 96. Absolutely. Why do yeah. you think that's the case? Well, it's because... Um, the union monopoly was over. In that earlier period, um, okay, you had um, the strike action that occurred and so forth um, delivered, delivered an outcome. Mm. Um, and so the unions continued that process of strike action. Even, you know, a small dispute at the workplace would suddenly mean that, well, say, the trams didn't go. Mm. You know, the, air, the aircrafts were being refuelled, whatever it might be. It was just the period of, um, it was called wildcat industrial disputes. Now, that's, that's what it was all about. Hmm. Um, so rather than a reasonable solution to issues, that wasn't occurring. It would be um, like the Hammersley one. One bloke was a member of the union, just take the whole business out. Now, once that, once that paradigm was changed, once, the, once the, the, the Workplace Relations Act came in, what did that mean? Well, unions were no longer the custodian of whether there would be either a consent award or agreement. Mm. Um, uh, uh, the, the the toolbox for employers meant that they they could they didn't have to deal with unions to make agreements. They could just deal with their own employees. How are they going to deal with their employees? Well, I've got to get close to their employees. They can't deal with their employees through the shop stewards anymore. Um, so. The, the, the new the new role for HR came in. How do we then, then teach our managers and our supervisors to get closer to the people to rather than to have a command and control approach to management, um, they have a consensus approach to management. Mm. Uh, so the, 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 all of those tools were needed. That sort of approach to um, to the human resources. Uh, was needed to make sure those employees would be on side so they would then reach agreement with their employer about what they wanted. And what, and what the employees wanted in many cases were, were things that the company wanted. For example, they were happy to move to 12-hour shifts. It meant that they got more time at home. They were happy to agree to, um, to changes in their work and retraining um, because they could see... Um, uh, more, uh, more money for them. Mm. They were happy to agree to salaried arrangements rather than wages and overtime systems, which the union always wanted, to make sure every second they got employees got paid for, because it meant that a salaried arrangement meant that they were getting a, a, a much better uh, monthly pay packet, which meant they can go and buy a bigger house because banks in those days only go, lent money based on on what was secure income. Salary was secure, but just the wages and overtime, the overtime bit was never counted by the bank because it was, because it was discretionary. Yeah. So 
so employees were actually quite keen on these changes mm. and they actually were quite resistant to what they've been told by the the unions the unions weren't representing them the unions were following their own agendas yeah. what was important to the union for example was whether people were members of union not whether they weren't putting the emphasis on 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 the the needs of employees in terms of their paying conditions yeah so i mean employers were pushing against a bit of an open door during that mm. period because as you say there was a there was a desire on the part of employers for many of these changes mm. but nevertheless it would have was it required quite a significant skill shift from the employer side wouldn't it mm. the skills of the ir manager in the 70s to then into this new dynamic which required really strong engagement sure. and direct engagement with the workforce yep and and what we then saw in that in that period under the Workplace Relations Act with AWAs. Um, well that was something the unions obviously uh, didn't like. There's a number of big disputes about individual contracts. You mm. probably remember the Weeper dispute. That takes too long to talk about that one. It's a great story. Um, but the, the, the whole emphasis there was that employees were quite happy to, to do a deal with their employer, an individual one. They weren't subject to the award system. They didn't have to be a member of the union. And the unions lost credibility. Mm. They were already losing credibility well before that legislation changed. The, you know, the, quite often employees would say, we've got two bosses, the company and the union. Yeah. That, was, that was what they used to, that was the language that was used, particularly in the West where there was, you know, a, a lot of this started. But, but all of that changed, so you, you saw a, a significant reduction in, uh, in union membership in that period, and you also saw a significant reduction in the number of industrial disputes. Well, I'm very interested in the topic of union membership as well, Russ, yeah. because we've of course moved from the first phase, 70s to 90s, from a very centralised regime. Unions were effectively at the centre of it. They controlled the communication with the workforce. You've just described what happened post the introduction of the reforms in, in 96, yeah. which really flipped that on its head and direct engagement was very much the focus. And that, of course, removed the union movement from, let's call it, the centre of, of the IR system. But um, we're now, in a sense, moving back in some ways to a more centralised model. You look at multi-employer bargaining, you look at the increase of um, power for the Commission to arbitrate disputes yep. through intractable bargaining, there's been a bit of a shift back. But um, in terms of the role of, of unions, it's they're very much not the centre of the IR system today, even with these changes. And that's sort of been reflected in the union movement having gone from a position of almost total control and, and very high density to, I think now we'll put the figures up on the screen, only around about 12.5% of the population are union members. Now, And in private industry, significantly less than that. That's right. That's mm. right. Higher density yep. in the public sector, generally speaking. Yep. So, I mean, what, what has been the drive of that, Russ? What has led to the decline in, in density over that period? Well, it, because the unions had less relevance. They, the unions weren't delivering the, the, the pay increases because of individual contracts or or agreements which, which were all designed for employers to, to then pay people based on the performance of, of individuals. Mm. It meant that um, it was up to the individual to, to work with the employer and the employer delivered the, 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 the increases in salary, not the union. So the unions just lost relevance. The employees realised they felt empowered by it. You know, I mean, so many employees didn't like the fact that, okay, you know, I, I do my job and you do your job, but, you know, you're a bit of a lazy so-and-so and I really work very diligently and I'm always on time and so forth, and yet you get paid the same as me. I should get paid more because, because I'm more diligent and... and you should get paid less because you actually really don't don't uh, have the same um, attitude to work. That, and people love that. Mm. Employees liked the fact that they were rewarded for what they contributed. And the people who didn't contribute as much didn't, uh, on the back of the good employers, get the same amount of money. 
we're all seeing that being turned back now. Yeah, well, we'll yeah. have to get you back uh, back to Melbourne, Russ, once we get the tabling of the same job, same pay reforms. But I think that's a topic <laughs> for no, another day. But just a couple of quick final questions before we move to the future, Russ. Yep. And um, I'm interested in enterprise bargaining generally. So we've had just over 30 years of enterprise bargaining as we know it under the current regime, so since the, the mid-90s. And I think that means many employers will be in their eighth, ninth, tenth, sometimes more, um, bargaining round. And there's been a lot of commentary from both sides of the political spectrum declaring that enterprise bargaining is dead over the last few years or so. And I think it's primarily put on the basis that you've had so many bargaining rounds um, since it all started back in the 90s that essentially there's nothing left to trade away. All the productivity improvements have been obtained and now it's really just a fight over wages. Do you agree with that proposition, Russ? Look, no, I don't. And I, and I think that I think from from where it comes from the union side is that they have they have come up against a brick wall because um, the sort of changes that employers want they're not prepared to agree to. Uh, there are still changes that are needed. We are now seeing ongoing changes in technology. We're now moving from a situation that that okay, it's not just a matter of um, computer assisting uh, uh, manufacturing or mining or other operations, you've now got autonomous, you know, autonomous trains, autonomous buses. So you've got changes occurring in workplaces which go well beyond um, what was imagined then. Those, those changes are being resisted. Unions, unions are saying um, that, okay, people are resisting redundancies wanting minimum number, you know, minimum, minimum employee guarantees. Uh, there's, there's a lot of work to be done still. Um, uh, I think, I think the, 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 the time is still good for enterprise bargaining to achieve results. But um, we've now got the laws being changed to put far more vetoes by the unions on how those are going to occur. Yeah. So, so these changes, I don't think, were needed, but um, the unions had lost so much power, um, they definitely wanted to be dealt back into the into the game. Yeah. And that's what the ALP promised them if they got into government, that the unions would be dealt back in again. And that is what's going to happen, in our opinion, and we've been through all that over previous episodes of Inside IR. Yeah. But that's a beautiful segue, Russ, to look forward. I mean, I think it's fair to say that we're in the midst of the greatest... Yep industrial relations changes we've seen certainly since introduction of the Fair Work this, Act. This is the pendulum going right back to the left again, very quickly. Yes, and we're seeing huge expansions in the power of unions and the Commission, including through things like multi-enterprise bargaining. I'm interested in your experience on multi-enterprise bargaining, Russ. Obviously, there was a version of that that was playing out in the 70s and 80s through the making of those sort of consent and industry awards. How do you see the new multi-enterprise bargaining system playing out under the new laws? Well, they could, they could play out that way, mm. but it's going to be much harder for the unions. Um, there are still some, some breaks there on them. Uh, for a company to be involved in multi-enterprise agreements, their employees have got to support multi-enterprise bargaining. Yes. Um, so that's one break. If, if the company already has uh, an interim enterprise agreement, then um, they're exempt from it. Um, what, what does that tell employers? Well, try to have an interim agreement. Mm. What does that mean for employees? That's good news because they can ask for more money to, to ensure that the, the employer isn't subject to that. So there's a price to be paid um, and, and we're already seeing, um, well, inflation's driving this as well, but we're always already seeing a, a rapid increase in the percentage of increases in enterprise agreements from all the new stats we're now getting. Yes. Yeah. So you think primarily it'd be used as a tool to incentivise the making of single enterprise? Yes, I think that yeah. will help. But then you try to look at input. You know, if you look at what was happening in the seventy and eighties, um, the there was there was already bargaining happening. Uh, you know, with multi-employers, with the industry awards. Um, and the employer organisations organised the employers. Um, and, you know, you had the, basically the, the whole process of, 
of, of getting jurisdiction involved, having logs of claims with lists of employees that claims are made against. So, the, so, the, so that was all chosen. Now, how are the employers going to be chosen by the unions now? Well, if I was the unions, I'd be, I'd be choosing some pretty compliant employers who are going to agree to what the unions want um, as the base for that, because there's now the new rules that enable them to rope in other employers once that convenient agreement is made. Yes. Now, is that going to drive productivity? In my view, no, it's going to go back to the lowest common denominator again, mm. because because they, there'll be, um, you know, you've got this concept of uh, what's a reasonably comparable employer. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that one of the big fashion jewellers, uh, you know, down here in Collins Street, um, and a few of those perhaps get roped into, get, get involved in multi-employer bargaining and reach an agreement. Obviously, they can pay better than other jewellers, but the, are the other smaller local jewellers, are they, is that, are they reasonably comparable or yeah. not? Well, that's a good, um, good and, question, Russ. And, we'll and, be watching that very closely. And, and, yeah. and, and the, I think the other one to look at is, well, uh, I, I think about this in the context of mining. Um, quite often what happens on a mine is, okay, the, the main employer employs the operations workforce and some of the maintenance people, mm. and then they'll have other contractors coming in doing the maintenance activities or other contractors coming in and doing some of the mining activities. Um, all on the same project. Now, are they reasonably comparable? Some are contractors, others are the principal, but they're still, in Western Australia, they're all still involved in the activity of, of, um, of mining and exporting iron ore. Yeah. So is that reasonably comparable or not? Yeah, well, we they're don't know, do we? We're going to have to wait and see. Mm. Yeah. But I think you made a point, Russ, about the coordination of the employers back in the 70s mm. and 80s and that they were coordinated by the employer associations and very much aligned when it comes to working through their logs of claims and position. Do you see that happening in this new regime? Because, I mean, that would be a, a very big change well, to what's happened over the past sort of 10, 20 years. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, the, we're in a very competitive world, mm. you know, internationally competitive. Uh, do you want to have to sit down with all your competitors and work out what how we're all going to pay the same amount of money? Hello, it's not. I, I think it's. I think that there'll be a lot of resistance to that. And I think obviously, the ACCC becomes a little bit uncomfortable with that proposition I'm sure, as well. I'm sure, and there'll be a lot of companies who will want to pursue. Obviously, they, they want. They want. They will want to get a competitive advantage by by driving change, using the tech, using the new technology new approaches to work, more flexible working arrangements to get a competitive edge. Uh, they, want to, they want to have that in their own agreements. Now, uh, they won't want to be, be sharing all of that with their competitors. No. What tips do you have for employers that uh, might potentially be entering into this new world of multi-enterprise bargaining, Russ? Well, try not to. <laughs> it's, it's simple to say. No, look, it, I think first one, if, if you haven't got an agreement, we'll think about one. Mm. See, there's still a lot of companies out there, significant ones, who don't have agreements. But that's going to leave them open. Is that a good idea or not? Um, uh, but it's not, it's, it's not easy these days. No. When you look at the, we, we, when you look at the tests that uh, the Commission now has to follow, um, they're, well, they're a bit of a nightmare for employers. You mm. just don't know what the Commission's going to do. Yeah. At the moment, it'll will be really a wait and see whether we actually end up with something that looks like the seventies. We'll really have to see when the commission starts making some of the decisions on this. But I think, based on your insights, Russ, it's safe to say that it is going to look a lot more similar to the environment from the seventies and eighties than perhaps the mid nineties to early two thousands. It's got the, It's clear. certainly got the potential to end there. Yeah, Brian, no doubt about it. And so, before we leave the new reforms, Russ, intractable bargaining obviously the new jurisdiction of the Commission to intervene and arbitrate bargaining that has become intractable. Yep. How do you see that playing out? How's the Commission going to handle arbitrating disputed claims? Well, well, it's, we'll put it this way. That's the new thing, that they can actually arbitrate hmm. what isn't agreed. Um, there's going to have to be a lot of work done by those companies in their, in their whole style of bargaining to make sure that they, that they don't 
um, that they know what's agreed and what hasn't been agreed. Um, how the Commission then decides um, on those claims, whether they look at um, the comparison of what is paid rates uh, or conditions in other employers, we just don't know whether they're going to take that approach. But it's, it's not going to be um, minimum rates. Mm. Um, it, you know that's the safety net. That's already in the modern world. No, we're well past so that. So it's now. going to be it's, mm. it's going to be it's going to be paid rates. Now, how are they going to decide that? Um, are they just going to that gives them the potential to line in, in, everyone up? No one has a competitive advantage on labour anymore. When that is, well, I think that's that, in part the intent. I think that mm. it is. That's part of the higher wages yeah, idea. That's right. But I think that's that's uh, not a very satisfactory um, outcome in terms of getting the most productive enterprises in this country. One final question for me, Russ, an important question. What aspects of the old IR regime would you like to pick up and transplant into the current regime, if you could? Well, one of the things that I have a real problem with is the complexity of the legislation as it's ended up. Uh, and I've, I brought this along today, Rowan. You've probably never seen this little, looks like a little novel. That's, that's the Act in 1981. Now, how many pages have you got now, Ryan? I think you might have yours over there. Well, I think we've got the latest consolidated volume. Yeah. And I think it's fair to add on top of that the Secure Jobs Better Pay Amending Act. Well, perhaps simplicity would be the best outcome. Mm. Someone can look at uh, the rules, uh, the, the complexity of the issues that now have to be addressed by employers is incredibly significant compared with what it used to be like. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think what the government should be aiming at doing isn't just adding to this, these volumes all the time. Someone needs to think about, let's go back to something far more simple and easier to understand. Well, if it can't be simplified, Russ, then at least make sure you've got good lawyers on your <laughs> speed dial. And uh, look, as Winston Churchill once said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. So I've found that really useful, uh, Russ, that discussion, the comparison of the new and the old, and hopefully our listeners did too. So um, as always, look, thank you for sharing your insights with us, Russ, and congratulations Thanks, on your 50 years. It's thank a really you. impressive achievement. We look to have you back on the Inside IR couch at some point into the future. Well, it's all exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And as always, look, we welcome feedback on Inside IR. If you have any feedback on this episode or any ideas for future episodes, please uh, direct message comment on LinkedIn, send us an email, insideir at hsf.com. Otherwise, we look forward to welcoming you to our next edition of Inside IR. Thank you.